This podcast is brought to you by People Dancing and was recorded in front of a live audience at the People Dancing International Conference, Glasgow 2017. Episode 6, Leading with Creativity, the importance of artistic approaches to dance in diverse settings. Hello and welcome everybody. My name is Emma Gladstone and I uh, run Dance Umbrella Festival, which is in London. Um, I'm really delighted to be here. Thank you very much to people dancing for inviting me. I'm particularly happy to have a caramel biscuit in my, Tunnock's caramel biscuit in my bag. (laughs) Um, So we've got an hour and a half today um, to talk with our panel here. The title is Leading with Creativity, the Importance of Artistic Approaches to Dance in Diverse Settings. Um, I'm just going to do a quick intro and then uh, each of the panellists here um, are going to talk for five minutes. We'll have a short discussion um, and I hope about half the session will be um, over to you and and with you. Um, So I travel a lot um, for my work. It's an international festival that I run and I often hear comments about how the UK is seen as leading in... um, social engagement and participatory work. I also have people looking at my brochure and and telling me, um, oh yeah, there's a lot of uh, social inclusion participation in it. And it interests me because uh, I don't think there's so much of that in the the festival programme. Occasionally there is, but not a lot. And I wonder if it's because they see that usually um, 20% of the programme is for young people and that they maybe think that that is participatory. Um, I did a programme last year with some dancers who were all in their 70s and 80s by a Norwegian woman, a choreographer called Hege Hagerud, and the photos showed them as older people, and I wondered if they thought the same. Um, And it was something that Monica touched on earlier about the terminology that we use, the language that we use, and how uh, we might need to shift how people look at dance and what's seen as professional work or not. And so it's something today I think is, is really interesting, is how we think about artistry and art. Um, if uh, we're talking about art, we've been talking at lunchtime a little bit about whether that automatically means audiences. Um, if you're doing participatory work that's with and by and for the participants, whether that can be called the same, whether there's uh, definitely artistry in that, but is there art? Um, And then I think about the pieces that I know of that I've seen that combine both, that have non-professionals in it and have a participatory element and are also uh, pieces that might travel or processes that travel far wider than for those immediately in the room. And these are just some of the questions that I think um, are gonna come up today and I'd love you to start thinking about in terms of questions for for afterwards. Um, So I'd like to start off, I think we're going to start with you, Rosie. You've got some images. I'm going to be hideously strict because there's five of them on the panel and uh, I'm going to keep you all to time. So I'm going to start a clock. (laughs) Here we go. Um, Yeah, okay, over to you. Ready, steady, go. So, John, if you could start the slideshow, and sorry for this slightly clunky beginning of my slideshow, technologically. I'm an independent choreographer. My name's Rosemary Lee, and I respond to commissions and create my own work from scratch. I make films and installations, as well as live work, and most recently, my work has been exclusively site-specific and very often is participatory. 
The scale of these varies, but often the casts are quite large, sometimes in the hundreds. I'm, I'm going to read because I want to stay with my five minutes, so I've timed it. Um, I'm, I might be asked to make work that responds to a site or a community, uh, but I have no ongoing practice with a regular group of people, which is very different from many of the artists here. Though I work in participatory settings and my work depends on and it is inextricably linked to the experience of the performer and their own spirit, I've chosen to look today in this introduction at how I might approach the human spirit in the audience. Emma provoked us with a question, how do you approach the human spirit in the work that you do? And so I decided as I make work for strangers, I would talk to you about what I assume is the human spirit of those strangers. Um, I try, so I'm just going to make a few points about how I think about the audience. I try to create contexts for the work that could reach a wider audience than the audience that would come into a venue like this, because there are many people that wouldn't come in here for the price of the ticket or just the fact that they wouldn't think this was their territory. So in my latest work, Calling Tree, which you'll see in a few moments with Simon Whitehead, we make the work outdoors every day in a public space. So I meet people I would never normally talk to, in fact, people I might actually avoid talking to. I make myself talk to them about the process, and they become my audience of unsuspecting passers-by, even just for a moment. On good days, I believe and trust that contemporary movement work can touch a wide range of people, regardless of their educational background. I don't believe the work needs to be dumbed down or explained in order to touch their spirit, but I don't underestimate that challenge. I want to create non-narrative work that moves and touches people, perhaps in a way that's really difficult to articulate, but I want to awaken a sense in them one where they and we and I might sense myself, their selves, ourselves more present in a new relationship to our thoughts, our perceptions, our fellow audience members, to notice and find ourselves anew, re-sensing ourselves and our connections to the outside world, however delicate and fragile. In short, I want to gently and often unconsciously shake people up. I want to offer work that might rekindle, strengthen and enliven our connection with our environment, whether it be the tree in a nearby park, a deserted coastline or a city. As a child, I was aware that my surroundings changed how I felt and that my connection with them was palpable. It almost fizzed. I perhaps feel that if I can reignite that in myself and in others, we might sense our shared life with other life forms more clearly. We might re-remember that. I usually want to express and offer something epic and in intimate, individual and collective. In the work I make with large casts, I hope to give a sense of the collective in all its diversity. So though the work is choreographed and not devised from scratch with the cast, I hope the space within its structure for their presence and quality to shine. I try to give no sense of soloists or hierarchy in these group works, so the ego has little space. And I hope, though, that the individual is not lost within the flatness of that model. So the human spirit in those instances, when represented en masse, uh, I'm hoping to illustrate a cooperative, non-hierarchical structure that presents the human spirit at its most humane, without being saccharine or twee. I think my, rep my work represents people as quite alone. I think I'm quite alone, actually. 
but with the potential to connect with each other and their context that makes few demands on them. So ultimately, I think what connects us all, beyond belief, cultural background, race, gender, age, etc., is our shared existence, is our shared aliveness, our shared breath in this room, our shared heartbeats, our, our hearts are beating, our lungs are filling and unfilling in this moment, in this room. What connects us is our interdependence on each other, our dependence on the earth and other living things. So in sensing our breath and our steps together, perhaps that might help sense our spirit more strongly, our sense of belonging, however tenuous, as well as our distinctive individuality. So I feel my task as an artist is to keep finding new ways and context to convey and share that. Thank you. Yeah. Fantastic, Rosie, thank you. You win the five minute prize good. so far. <laughs> Very good, thank you. I'm gonna push straight on. Monica, can we move over to you? Hi, so I'm Monica Gillette. I'm a dance artist and for the purpose of this panel discussion, I'll primarily speak about a project that I was a co-artistic director of. Um, it was a collaboration between Theatre Freiburg and University Freiburg and the Yasmin Godere Company. You've heard of, some of you have heard of me speaking about this already because it has a Dance for Parkinson's component, but what I want to zoom in on, on for this discussion is how we asked the artists to participate in the project and the model that we set up. So we, didn't, we invited 10 dance artists, Yasmin Godere and her four of her company members and five choreographers coming from the German region. And we didn't just ask them to, from their artistic practice, develop classes for people with Parkinson's. We also gave them residency time. So a month, some, some more than a month, that while they were developing those classes, while they were also developing research proposals, physical research proposals for the scientists to dance also, they had studio time. And we asked, just confront yourself, let yourself be confronted, let your practice be impacted by the encounters you're having with the people with Parkinson's and with the scientists. Only process-based, not product-based. And um, that was a year and a half ago. And the impacts of that and their artistry and the work coming out of that are still being seen and still being understood and still evolving. Um, so I offer it as a, as a, as a model that uh, how we can allow for the space for artistic practices to be impacted by other fields, by other disciplines, um, by other populations. And for my role in it, because I also engaged as a dance artist, um, I entered it with wanting to share one of the reasons that I dance. Um, and I can summarize it from a quote that I found from Emil Greco, a choreographer from Holland. Uh, I found this in my 20s, early 20s. He said, I must tell you that my body is curious about everything. And I, I am my body. So I try to bring that spirit into the studio no matter what group or um, yeah, no matter who I'm working with, I try to turn them into curious bodies. I try to Im Im bring them to the point of, I'm, I'm gonna research through my body, this is my instrument and this is my tool. And maybe this is a given for all of us, but when you're working with scientists and you're trying to stake your claim for your instrument and your tool, it becomes 
something else, uh, becomes a more active uh, position to take in a research process that's transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary. So I think I got in under the five minutes, the <laughs> kickoff proposal. No, you did. Um, I, I think it's really, it's interesting just to hear you together, just Rosie talking about the art that you're making in terms of performative and performance outcomes. And Monica, what you're talking about, where you mentioned about these residences that I think the idea of giving that space and time to artists comes from being an artist. Yeah. Uh, it's, not, it's something I think it's, it needs that invention of thinking. But you both talked, you talked about shaking people up and you talked about letting yourself to be confronted. And it's maybe something um, that we can come back to later. Uh, great, Vincent, I'm gonna ask you to jump in now if you would. Sure. Good afternoon. <laughs> it's good to know you're out there. Um, so I am an artist, a dancer, choreographer, and teacher professor at a university in Baltimore, Maryland. And I spent um, years with the Liz Lerman Dance Exchange and now have my own company, VT Dance. And um, I was been thinking about this word as we were chatting beforehand about artistry and I don't think that uh, my artistry is defined by the many uh, techniques that the body has experienced, but I think it goes a little bit deeper than that for me. Although I value those um, techniques, but I also honor and pay tribute to where I began. And for me, that was with um, Don Cornelius and Soul Train, Solid Gold, American Bandstand, Hee Haw, The Lawrence Welk Show. And what happened in my small living room and what happened in our community center and in our backyard and front yard. And those physical experiences have really had a deep and profound impact on what my artistry is, because I believe it's deeply rooted into um, culture, ancestors, people, my grandmother. So um, that is what has surfaced for me about um, artistry and art. And right now, um, we're touring a piece called What's Going On, which looks at life, love, and social justice through the lens of Marvin Gaye's music. And this gives an opportunity for audiences, for participants, for the greater communities to really um, look and think and feel deeply about who and where they are and why does it matter in the world and how to make um, their lives, their situations, their environments better. Uh, this, I think, the power of art. And um, so it keeps me very curious about in ways in doing that. And so um, I also think about the work that I do with men um, through my masculinity workshop called Father, Sons, and Other Guys, and not um, asking them to, to be dancers or to be artists, but to ask them to be human beings and to realize where the social construct word has um, 
informed their way of being. So I think artistry goes beyond the stage, it goes beyond the studio where I practice, it, it goes beyond all of those um, boundaries of what's created, but it's really informed, the creation is informed by so many other things beyond just the technique. I think I'm under five minutes. No, no, you are. Then I've got a question for you then. Yeah. Of that, um, we were talking about the human spirit and when you mentioned those things, those shows that you saw as a child, mm -hmm. um, I suppose the question for me is how you translated more than the techniques you're talking about in terms of practical dancing, where you feel your artistry came from to translate those inspirations that, you, that spoke to you when you were younger and growing mm -hmm. up in your community, how you see those translating to create the artist that you are today. What's the transition yeah, there? Yeah, I, I think I had to hold on to, I mean, as a kid, seeing people on Soul Train that looked like me mm -hmm. was one of the first times um, watching television where I saw people of color mm -hmm. um, being in their fullness of expression, and it wasn't that they all looked the same, they were individuals. It wasn't until Solid Gold that costumes came into the picture, mm -hmm. or Hee Haw, but Hee Haw was country dancing and clogging and all that. But I feel like I had to hold on to those values and those principles there, and how do they um, intersect or collide or um, move in tandem with other techniques like the Graham technique of ballet or Horton or Limon that I've learned, I cannot let go of my first language. Mm -hmm. and, and how the culture, how my family culture um, helps, was there as a support system. Mm -hmm. um, there's, um, there's more I want yeah. to ask you. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Thank you, Dick. Can I ask you? Thank you very much. Um, Sankita, can I ask you to uh, dive in next, please? Um, yeah, so, before I kill that bottle. Um, for the last 20, 22 years, uh, I've been traveling and trying to gain as much experience with as many communities as possible. So in my 20s, um, for more than, you know, um, 10 years, I just went from place to place and I would be on a tour or doing a research grant, it didn't matter. Wherever I went, for whatever reason, I would try and connect with local communities. It could be people um, with disabilities, it could be sex workers, street kids, um, marginalized communities like the Mayan community in Mexico or um, landmine victims, different communities. And my, my goal was to see what does dance have to offer? What can we do? And I myself didn't know what I was seeking. And I think that's the point I'm trying to make. Sometimes for a long period, we don't know where we're going and we don't know why we're doing what we're doing. But there's something in there that keeps pushing you forward. And people keep saying, when are you going to settle down? What are you going to do? And you don't know and that's okay, you know, I still don't know. But um, what I discovered was I was very interested in processes of transformation 
And that seed of thought was the development of this technique that I call Katradi now, and which has evolved into an organization. There's just two things I want to say about Katradi, which is that one, we, yes, we work with a diverse range of communities. I have worked in more than 30 countries with different uh, spaces, outside, inside, uh, different kinds of organizations. But the important thing is the ideology of the five levels of communication, physical, emotional, sensory, intellectual, and intuitive. I say intuitive because the word spiritual is considered bad these days, but <laughs> in one sense, I mean that not in a religious sense, but in the sense of the spirit. So I um, hesitate to use that word because it puts people off, but I intend that which is within us that does not need a voice that expresses itself through our being. Having said that, I have to confess that Katradi does not typically only use dance. First of all, the word dance does not even exist in most Indian languages. It's complete theater. Dance is theater, theater is dance. We don't divide in most of Asia, actually, most traditional forms. I can't give a blanket generalization, but I could easily say 90% of Southeast uh, and Southern East Asian uh, traditions would combine dance and theater. Uh, now we work with sport, we use photography, we use all kinds of mediums because our goal is the community. What do they want? How can we reach them? So the spirit of the Katradi technique does not require particularly only dance as a tool. So I confess that to this predominantly dance-based audience. <laughs> I'm really sorry about that. Um, and the things that make me passionate about what I do is one, traditional forms of art are really, I feel, are in, on verge of extinction or at least homogenization or McDonaldization, mainly because of funding systems. Funding come for particular kind of art forms and that ensures, because of the survival of the fittest, that only certain kind of art is over a wide range but still only in one direction is produced. And uh, so one of my passions is wherever I go, for example, a year ago I was asked to do nature education um, for snow leopard conservation in Kyrgyzstan. And we decided that we would use the folk tales, the folk movements, the folk rhymes. We did a whole uh, one year of research and gathering this material. And then I designed lesson plans, lesson plans using this body of material because I felt we were, these kids would no longer they were all reading Snow White and Sleeping Beauty and Spot the Dog. So, um, <laughs> so that is one of my passions that informs my work and increases the vocabulary of my work. And the other is people, stories. Um, just to give one example, throw things at me if it's five minutes over. You've got one example. Okay, thank you, one example. Um, when I went to Moluku 14 years ago, the first, I was supposed to go work with conflict, uh, with the Christian Muslim conflict there with young people. I had never done conflict work in my life before, okay? And I was like, ha ha, hi. Um, uh, but I was willing to be there and try and figure something out while I was there. And nobody else was willing to go there. So they said, you go, Sangeeta. I went. And the first child, 12-year-old that I met, 
And I asked him, so, you know, we were just sitting and chatting, having tea in the house of the pastor who had invited us. And he said, um, so, so I said, you know, how have the last few months been? He said, I've been killing a lot of people. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. And he just looked at me and he said, um, Pastor, I'm not going to name names, has asked me to meet you because um, I come from a different area. And there the pastor has taught us that once you kill someone, you pick up the blood and you go in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this pastor is now telling me I shouldn't do that. And he is trying to uh, see if I want to explore other options in life. So this is the first thing that hits me when I reach this strange country where I don't even speak the language. And I'm thinking to myself, what can I tell this child? What is it that I can tell this child? Who is obviously pushing me. He just wants to see what reaction. This, this story is not something it's easy to say or easy to even hear. He's pushing me. And that experience made me design an entire area of, of technique that talks about ritual. How ritual normalizes the most extreme of actions. Mm -hmm. And I come from a tradition that works on ritual. The first thing we do when we start dancing is touch the ground and say, thank you. But ritual can be powerful in any direction. So every encounter I have with people with a culture, with a tradition, stimulates me to push and see where, as humans, we have developed incredible ranges of culture that we need to celebrate, but also realize the power of, which can be used in any direction. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There's a lot there to pick up on later, and I'm interested in the different paths that you're, you're drawing stuff from your past and from your inspirations growing up, and you're going out into unknown in a different way. There's still unknowns there about how you're working, but it's um, the journey of travel in, um, is, is just a, a interesting in terms of your focus now of how you're working, and I'd like to come back to that. But finally, I'd like to ask Mark to um, share his thoughts. Hopefully, you can handle another one. <laughs> I'm Mark Demix. I'm at the moment the founder and of Dent for Health organization in Holland. We run classes for people with Parkinson's disease. I used to be a director of a dance house, dance production house. And actually, I never called myself an artist. Although the things I'm doing then and the things I'm doing now are the same, and I think has to do with art. Um, by the time when I was running the dance house, I had this idea in my head that it doesn't matter what you do, if you work with professionals or with amateurs or with students or whatever, it's all art and you have to do it on the highest level possible. So when we invited choreographers to work and create with us, we also asked them to work with students or amateurs or whatever. For example, Itamar Sirusi is here with me, a choreographer. I asked him at that first moment to work with the amateur group. And what happened that um, uh, after the project was finished, he had a connection with his group. He, he started traveling from Amsterdam to Belgium all the way every weekend to create with that amateur group. And um, sleeping in the studio, I think, 
And by the time, after half a year, probably he had a performance, I went to go and see it, and then I saw something beautiful in his creation, but also in what it meant for the people he worked with, how it changed, how it developed them, and even when we talked to them now 10 years later, you really know that it made, made a difference. The, that was def definitely what art can do. Um, it's touching from your heart another heart and moving something. And I think that's what changed in my life. Because when I started to not only think in my head and, uh, and rationalize everything that I know is good, but also really do some, everything from out of my heart, and it started to happen in the change of my life when my Parkinson's disease appeared. And um, I couldn't do anything else than, than follow the heart because if I don't, then I'm not able to move. There, there was the difference. The difference is, and I have to read the quote, which sometimes helps to, uh, to quote a famous man, then it's easier to let that come across. Mm -hmm. And it's really a famous man because it's uh, Mandela who used the words, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It's our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and beautiful, and fabulous? I skip a part. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And if we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. If we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And I think that's what we do when we, when we connect it with a an, an form, an artistic form, to bring, the, bring it across. If it's dance, or if it's theater, or if it's music, it doesn't matter. If we have this light in ourselves and are able to bring it across to you, and you take it on, in yourself, and you pro probably will take it on again, then we're moving something. Mm -hmm. And then um, the humanity, the human spirit, is passed on in the, in the art. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. It, it brings up that, um, that whole idea of art being about communication and um, something that goes out to others to be read and, and where we started with Rosie and the human spirit and I like the fact you said you were making for people you don't know. We're you know, making you're work for strangers. Yeah, so. making work um, <laughs> for strangers. Um, whereas Sangeeta, you're, you're, you're going to meet the strangers and then making your art. It's a different kind of direction. For Monica, from your example, you're making space for that art to happen, but it's a long game plan. So the impact that that space you dreamt up of giving to those artists while they're doing the workshops with you has a, has a lasting impact that will take years to come through. And in terms of what you were saying, I find it's, it's a, I know Liz quite well, and it's just a, I find it a fascinating um, journey of what's resonating from you earlier on, how you took that spirit that you saw, the recognition that you saw into your future work to then give out. Um, and it makes me question, just in terms of this conference, your own journeys into the unknown. It's all 
you've all made your own paths, I feel, in different ways. You know, not knowing where you're going, often uh, in terms of countries, in terms of people, in terms of situations you might go into. But uh, I suppose it's one of the great distinguishing things for me about the most interesting people I work with, not only artists, but people that are creating art, helping to create art and get work made and out there, is the courage to go into the unknown. Mm. And I just wondered if any of you have got any thoughts about either what you've heard or your own journeys. Um, because I, I think people often think, you know, you, you know where you're going, and most of us have got no idea where we're going. Um, and it's something I find fascinating in, in terms of the art that we make and how it's read by people of what's seen as art. And something very interesting here, I want you to come and work for the Arts Council if in India all the dance and theatre is seen as exactly the same thing. <laughs> so we're slightly imbalanced in this country. But it is, it is also really... Um, it's also interesting for me in terms of classical forms and and contemporary devised work mm. um, when we're often uh, you're setting sail on into unknown territory mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know we know Rose's choreography many of us will know it and the way that she works the scale that she works that she's often working outside of conventional spaces but uh, she's made that path you know she's created her own path to follow that journey and I just find it interesting the courage that's needed to set sail mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if it's an interesting part of that artistic approaches is, is sailing into the unknown. You know sometimes I mean I actually love the the unknown. I was teaching music in South Carolina in an elementary school and um, I went to the American Dance Festival Winter Intensive in 1996 in, Gen in New York. And I went back to school and I told the principal, I said, you know, I'm not sure what it is, but something is pulling me and I just really want to figure it out or at least walk in this path of, and he said, whatever you need to do. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll quit teaching music and move to New York and wait tables. And I knew I really wouldn't wait a table. I mean, really? I did that, <laughs> I did that one day, one day in, in school, in high school. And I went home and I said, Mom, I, I can't do that. So I totally immersed myself into the arts and student government and all this other stuff. So anyway, so, um, yeah, I had no idea what I was going to do, and then um, I went, my modern teacher said, well, have you thought about grad school? And so that opened the door to going to Florida State, which opened the door for me meeting Jawale Willa Josaler, mm -hmm. which opened the door for her introducing me to Liz Lerman, which opened the door for this and this and this and this. And, mm -hmm. So I was on this road of not knowing where I was going, but believing and trusting in the universe and that one foot was going in front of the next. And that I had um, a foundation that was being built to just trust where my feet were being planted. Mm -hmm. Is the ground sometimes shaky? Yes. That vibratory feeling in the body is exciting too. Um, 
So I think I, I embrace the unknown journey. Do you think we need to, um, I wonder if we get braver by having done those steps. I, I've just been doing some digital talks and one of the questions with Sister Vaughan Davis was about when did you feel like you were a choreographer and she said, um, you know, uh, she said just a couple of years ago when I made a film for the first time and I realised my choreographic skill could be transposed into a different form. That's when I realised I actually had skills as a choreographic maker in space and time. So I just wonder if the different fields that you're working, that um, yeah, whether you have the courage to know you that foot in front of a, you know, the step by step you were talking about, Vincent. Just if you know that resonates with any of you. Yeah. I can share a short experience I had when I did four years ago. I had the invitation to give a TED talk about visuals about in the movement, in the moment, about within your limitation, you can do everything you want. At the same time, the organization asked me if I could give the opening, opening of the, uh, the day with, with a performance, which I did till that time and I had never done before. So I started practicing together with Itamar, that period, trying to make, and in my head, uh, uh, image idea of what choreography should look like and how I should look like. And of course, I was completely not able to get there because of my I wasn't a dancer, I, I, I had Parkinson's, and uh, I, I never performed before. So not, <laughs> the, just <laughs> not few, really the best. Just a few uh, firsts, yeah. though, yeah. So, um, although I liked it very much, but the problem was the, the lack between the, the, the not being able to get there to your image, what it would, what it would be. The moment uh, I decided, well, to cancel the performance, I thought, oh no, that's what well, can I, I cannot do, because then I need to cancel my speech that you can do anything you want. <laughs> so then uh, we decided together, we, okay, we go, we go on stage, and we don't know what will come. We just start uh, with a few cues, and we went there, my first performance ever, just improvising, never improvised before. <laughs> but why did it work? Because I had the courage to go, yeah. because I had the, the energy of, of uh, uh, being there, it was really special for myself, it was really thrilling moment to do and this energy came across and in itself this was perfectly well and beautiful and it was that beautiful that to uh, yesterday uh, it actually it's the same thing in, in a way I asked Itamar I think two days ago could you come with me to the conference and I asked you two hours before we went on in the workshop could, could you perform with me <laughs> yes because in the moment, it's uh, uh, deciding what good and what comes, mm -hmm. then it's almost the same as the unknown, but it's also the known. Mm -hmm. It's trusting yourself, mm -hmm. and then you will know that it, you will get somewhere. Lovely. Yeah, I think that's artistry. <laughs> Rosie, before we, um, we should open up quite soon. So yeah, Rosie, um, thoughts? Navigating the unknown, so to speak. Um, trust, I think, was the, the word I was thinking of. Uh, Sort of, I think when I feel really uh, worried that something isn't going to work, I try. I think it's getting harder, actually, than when I was a younger artist. But I try to say, trust the form, trust the form, trust the form. Uh, by that, I mean the sort of field, that, the movement field, what I know about dance. 
And I was thinking, as I was thinking that Emma might ask me to talk about this, was that actually I should also admit that I think it is sometimes hard to do that and that sometimes um, I have challenged myself to a point where I think it isn't working. So, you know, there have been moments when we've done Calling Tree where the audience didn't want to see somebody in a tree and made that fairly vocal. So you're sort of uh, having to deal with that. I can't say what they said, but... Um, and you can't really move them on, you know, you can't ask them to leave the theatre, they're in a public space. So, so in sort of innocently or kind of idealistically taking my art into the public arena and into public space, you also have to realise that uh, you have to deal with what that means to be in a public space and all of humanity being around you while you're trying to do your thing and what right do you have to do that and are you intruding and all those other questions come to sort of uh, are thrown back in my face in a way so that I do really trust the form, but I'm putting myself more and more as I've got older in more difficult positions to trust it, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. And I think that's to keep me awake because I do think sometimes if I, if I sort of follow a formula, make my work with 100 people and blah, 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 it's going to always look the same. So I'm kind of forcing myself into sort of unknown territory in order to make sure I'm still an artist. Refreshing yeah. those yeah, it's always quite hard as well yeah. <laughs> at times, but not as hard as that story. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was extraordinary. So, yeah. Monica and Sangeeta, before we open out, do either of you want to add in? And um, I think it, if everybody's seen any kind of Indian iconography, you'll see a lot of the gods having the hand like this. It's called the Abhaya Hastam. And this abhaya, bhaya is fear. Abhaya means be without fear. And this blessing, like Indians are constantly falling at the feet of older people, feet of your teachers, feet of God. We have this tradition of keep, we just fall all the time. In weddings, my sister never even stood up. She was flat on the ground. Like she just said, please keep moving on. I'm not getting up again, you know, next, next. At one point, it's ridiculous. But whether they're blessing you for fertility, for the number of children you're going to have, for a long life, for a successful life, for lots of money, for uh, whatever success and whatever endeavor you have chosen, the hand remains the same. The blessing is still the same. Because fear, any act, whether you want to raise a beautiful family, whether you want to be successful at your job, whether you want to be a good dancer, whether you want to be a good person, you need to first conquer fear. And this is the interesting thing. The goddess has a second hand, not the god, just the goddess, okay? Um, and this is called the varada, which means giving. It's when you have fear, it's like this. I mean, we've all experienced it the day before your math exam when you're seven years old, up to life-threatening situations, waiting for the result from a cancer treatment, you know, a thing, a PET scan. We all know the feeling of crisping up. If we can loosen and face the fear, that's when you can loosen and give and receive. So this is the balance. Be fearless so we can be open-hearted. So facing the unknown actually requires this. The unknown does not have to be a paid trip to Bali where you don't know the place, but you know you have the security of your credit card. That is not the unknown. Right? The unknown is when you're facing your fear. So do you think the combination is what makes an artist? Yes. 
for me at least, that's, that's the definition I have come up with. And this is something I've been working on the last year when I have had to face a lot of things in my life. And it's been a very difficult time, but again, these are these things that just come to you when you need it, because I'm facing, I was facing one of the strongest fears, mm. fear of death, fear of being alone, you know? Mm. And this is it. Abhaya and Varata balance each other out, and that's, that's something that has been a blessing for me to understand in this stage of my life. Yeah. I have no idea what it will be next year. Thank you very much, Monica. Jump on to that. Um, in our project, because we were process-based and not product-based, um, but I was still always using my tools as a dancer. At one point, I asked myself, okay, we're in the studio every day. It feels like a rehearsal, but we don't have a piece or a performance at the end. So I kept asking, what are we rehearsing? What are we rehearsing for? And, um, and I realized we're rehearsing the stamina to be comfortable in the uncomfortable. Mm. This entire project, we had no idea where we were going. <laughs> we just created the frame and invited people into it, and everyone had their layers of fear and discomfort along the way. But together, through the whole year, we were rehearsing the stamina to live inside of things that scared us. Um, and on, I had to use that skill. Um, I'm also now co-creating a piece with 25 women with and without cancer, and the piece will premiere in December. And we've been working with them since March. And I, I was nervous. I hadn't done this kind of work, and I was invited to do it because of the Parkinson's work. And uh, I didn't. Exp I wasn't. I wasn't. Ex I didn't prepare myself at all in this process that we would lose one, and we did um, in the fourth month of rehearsal. And suddenly, a rehearsal had to turn into a funeral or a memorial. Um, two days after we got the news, and. I spent the two days crying and um, not knowing how I was going to guide these women whose biggest topic is the fear that the cancer will come back. Um, what, what am, I can't assure them it's not going to come back. I can't, how do I deal with their fear um, of that? Because that's what gets triggered every time this woman was in her early 30s that passed. Um, but we used, we did go into the, the skills of our body and the technique of our body and we, we did transform this, this three-hour rehearsal into a journey of giving space for the fear to exist and drumming and pounding and screaming <laughs> through the anger and the frustration and then dancing our way to joy by the end. Um, so I'd never, I didn't know how to do it, but I, I did use what I did for all my other situations of making a work or trying to create and it, and it showed up in that room, and, um, and we carry, we're still confronted by it, we carry it with, with every rehearsal that we, we do. Sometimes we need to call on it again and arm ourselves with understanding how to walk through to the end um, with, with one of our partners being gone, so. It's an interesting thing about the um, uh, presence that's been touched on and honesty in all of these different examples that we've heard, I think, about the, the presence and the existence of, in the now, I think, the shared breath in this room that it was spoken about. Um, I think it's fascinating to hear such different examples of how these people are working artistically um, in different ways. And um, I thank you for sharing it with us because they're 
very profound in each of their different ways. Um, I would like to open out now. We've got just under 40 minutes, and I feel it would be really great to hear any thoughts or comments or questions that you would like to ask um, or share. There are microphones, and I, because it's quite full, I would ask you to wait till a mic comes to you. So if you could put your hands up, I will pick a couple, and then we'll get some mics over to you. Thank you. Quite anxious, so if my words kind of splutter, um, I apologise. Um, I'm, I'm a, a quite an old emerging dance artist, um, and, I, and I was really interested in um, what you said about within limitations and how you went beyond that to. Um, to do was it a TED talk, and I, I didn't quite get everything that you said, so I just wanted to um, hear more about your experience and what you um, getting beyond within limitations and what that is through energy and whether you mentioned improvisation as well um, or improvising um, and whether that may be naturally occurring within participatory art. Right, yeah, anything to do with that would be great. Um, Thank you. To try to, to tell it briefly, um, when I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease uh, eight years ago, um, at that time I was sent to the physiotherapist to do my movements, and it was terrible because I was in a, an environment where, where there were only white coats, wheelchairs, and facing my problem uh, every time again. So I shut it, uh, put it away for two years ignoring the fact and then uh, then the moment came that I thought maybe dancing is good for me and there my world changed completely because in that moment where first everything you are offered when you got, had got a disease is focusing on your problem is at then at that point focusing on your possibility and it's the same it's the other side of the middle mm -hmm. and there the world opened because literally I felt free in my body. I felt released. Not it was not gone. It isn't gone. But I felt released and I felt beautiful. Um, the, this goes in stages because I started to dance because I thought it's good for me from a from a point of view as it is a physical exercise and it's working on my balance and my posture and it all, all is true. That's a good reason to start, but that's not artistry of art yet. Uh, the second thing is that it changed my perspective. It helped me very much to look at my own situation differently and to swap it around. But actually, I think now, where I'm now, is in the, m the most exciting place, where I'm running this organization, Dent for Health, which used to call Dent for Health and Parkinson's. I skipped the Parkinson's. <laughs> because actually, maybe we should skip the health. <laughs> it's about dancing. I've got a question. You, you ran an arts centre. Why did it take you two years before you thought dance might be able to help you? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, <laughs> it's probably when it's just in front of you that close, then you look over it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. No, it's, um, it's because we're living in a world where we have certain... Uh, uh, agreement that when you have something, you go to a doctor and talk to the doctor tells mm -hmm. you what, what's good for you. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't tell you 
there isn't a recipe for dance. Mm-hmm. There's always a recipe for future therapy, there's a recipe for the medicines. And although I'm a creative person, it didn't occur to me that this was good for me. On that end, if it did, probably it wouldn't help because it also, it also need time. Yeah, to and come to yeah. terms. Thank you. Is that an answer? I want to try and just um, s- spread it around a bit, but we'll come back. We've got time at the end. Other comments, other thoughts, other questions? Yeah, in the middle there. Thank you. What strategies do you pull on to help you overcome the fear when you're embarking on these projects or making work that's taking you into unknown situations? What helps you through that? Thank you. Is everybody here? We'd like to answer that one. One one thing, surround yourself with the people that will help you do it. That's to me is, has been the key when I'm entering this is making sure I find the team, the people that will meet the parts that I might be weaker in and don't know how yet is bring them, bring your team together. I'm going to say something weird, but it's true. I mean, true, really true. In Indian dance, for example, if I'm playing the part of, I mean, I'm singing towards the goddess, okay? I'm just singing. It's just a song or I'm playing the role. But at some point, you have to become that, that goddess, right? We are taught from when we are children that you are talking to some person, but since you're only one person on stage, you also have to become that person so the audience can see that person in you, right? So if I'm dancing to this person, so I am saying, oh, please come, I love you so much, I'm missing you, and all that. But at some point, I have to be her saying, I will be there with you, right? So forget the goddess. The important thing is, we can play that we are the person that has the courage, and we become that person, because we have an image. We are pulled towards that image of, of confidence, or of, we have the quality of, of actually surmounting it. So play it. It's a beautiful technique that, again, I've taken from this tradition. You have the capacity, own it. Trust it and own it. Thank you. I don't think I can add to that. That's <laughs> but it's a, I, yeah, I realize that as a mother, that I'm, I wish I could say it as beautifully and eloquently as you just said, but I think that's what I would tell my son if I can see him. Um, confronting fear as a performer is uh, that I know he's a really good actor so act it I know know that sounds so put the cloak on of confidence put the cloak on of no fear because we know as particularly as movement practitioners we know that you know we know this and we know this so if we can try and do this even if we're feeling like this it actually will really help so I think I think I probably do that as well and also joking I try to just try to joke about my own fear with the people around me so that there's a lightness to the... To, <laughs> to the, the terror. To the terror. <laughs> <laughs> Fluffy terror. <laughs> the last thing was very important to make yeah. it, yeah. When once, quite often when we teach uh, teachers to start teaching people with Parkinson's disease, they ask me uh, before they have their first class, do you have one big tip for me what to do? 
And the only thing I can tell, tell them is, forget about everything you learned, because it, it's there anyhow, it's, it's in your system, and just enjoy, because then it will work. Mm -hmm. Good instructions. Thank you. I, I would say, Sorry, in addition to all of these things about fear, this particular question, is to acknowledge it and surround yourself with, uh, with allies and be, be in conversation, be in laughter, be embracing of what the fear is. I mean, you know, really we're socialized with fear. Um, Annika B. Lewis and I just did a project last year called The Fear Project. And it really was just, um, the seed was all of these news alerts that we were getting around flying from the airports. And so to sit and talk about these alerts and realize it's a fear tactic, and then to look at all the other things that we're socialized, that socialize us around fear, and it's real. So to really be able to talk about these things, to laugh about them, to make a Saturday Night Live skit about fear, um, but to embrace it and surround yourself with allies and people that can help support you is important. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, it is just a bit of art, you know, in the grand scheme of things. I, that's what I try and sort of prioritize. It's just sort of a moment in my life. If it's going to all fail, there's other moments. And what's more important is there's a lot more important things. So try not to make it just the be all and end all of my life. Are you saying art is not the meaning of life? <laughs> what was that? Are you saying art is not the meaning of life? <laughs> yeah, I think I might be. <laughs> it's one of the meanings. That's some good answers there. I hope that answers your question. Come on, folks, you've got this amazing group of people here. Yeah, up at the back and then over in the middle there. Um, just carrying on from where, what you were talking about, um, as opposed to yourselves, thinking about participants, the strangers that you work with, what measures, strategies do you put in place to empower them to overcome their fears of what they're they're doing. I mean, they're, they're putting themselves in a really vulnerable position. And what strategies do you put in place to empower them to be the artists? Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. Got it. Who'd like to dive in? Anyone? We were just saying there's so many answers to it. We're trying to go through the catalog of like <laughs> which one to respond. <laughs> yeah. So if we can, because the go. theme is about artistic approaches, I'd okay. like your answers to be in that frame if you can. Artistic approaches to yes. overcoming fear. Yes. <laughs> that is an artistic approach. Um, it was when you said that I, I suddenly thought, oh, well, I'm going to say maybe that's not true. Uh, but I'll say it anyway because I'm not quite sure I'm answering Emma's uh, uh, prompt there. Um, but maybe I am, because I suppose the materials of the trade of the um, somatic practices. So in terms of movement, uh, in order to make people feel safer, I start with them feeling more at home in their bodies. So we all do that. But that's really vital, I think, to not forget that that is 
very much part of how, if people feel more at home in their bodies, there will be more space for artistry. Um, so it's, uh, they, first of all, they need to be comfortable in the space, and I'll do that by joking and, you know, all the other things we all do that I'm sure you all have your own practices. No, no, but like then, what? No, no, like what, Rosie? Like what? Um, <laughs> like, like faffing about a bit myself so they can see that I'm just human, and I, I mean, it sounds a bit manipulative, but a bit like I am being now that I'm just, I'm just me, you know, blah, 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 and then I can go into the sort of magic place. But they kind of need to see me as just me first, so I'm not scary, as I'm some other artist, this mystery person. Um, so I sort of try to get everybody on a level playing field. Everyone has equal status from the word go. So we give time to the child and we give time to the person that can't really articulate so well. So, that, so the kind of within the first five minutes, hopefully I've shown what the model's gonna be and that everybody has their place and everyone will be listened to. Mm. So there's all of that, the respect, but also there's touch and how touch, literally physical touch, can help people feel more grounded and then freer to explore more. So I do that all first in order to allow for more space to be given to each person, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and because I'm looking at them and giving them space, then they have more space to be artists. But on the other hand, I'm the author, and they are in the way I work, and they are coming to be part of that world. So I've got to create that world in a way that they feel really safe and find out where their place is in that world. So I, that's sort of in a nutshell. No, that's great. It's fascinating. Thank you. Can I ask you to answer because you're working in a different way? Rosie is asking people to come into her choreographic yeah. world. You're working differently, going out and into their societies. And you mentioned about asking what they wanted or what they needed. The people, the many different people that you work with. So um, I just wondered if you'd be able to chip in. Actually speaking. I do exactly what she does, really. It's about whatever community you're with, it's about creating a safe space. So I have this kind of framework that I call bridging the gaps, and I spend one hour, we do the most ridiculous name games, because name games is very self-affirmative, yelling your name, having people yell it back at you. But I seriously, I dream up name games. I have the most ridiculous ones where you're like <laughs> on all fours, where you're up. It's again doing things that you normally wouldn't do, but it completely breaks your inhibition on a different level. And I think names are very powerful, doing body signatures, uh, things like that, and trust exercises. I mean, I don't have to tell anybody here about trust, you know, falling and lifts. We do a lot of lifts, but in a very safe space. But all this goes to break inhibition. I use enormous amounts of humor. Um, and uh, it creates that first, you know, the whole, remember, I, yeah, the, what I did yesterday about there's no judgment, creating the, the baseline of the values that are in this room. You've put it so beautifully this morning. We all have value, you know? But you have to anchor that. That's the first thing you need to anchor wherever you are in whatever language, whatever culture, because people need that reassurance that they can say and be and say things openly, it doesn't matter, you won't be judged. The second thing I do is I really do this stuff, like, you know, be the goddess, like find, find that perfection in you. We do exercises where you have to find, like you create a very silent moment, you, very internalized moment, maybe through visualization, and then you have to, in that silent moment, you take a position that you feel is your position of power. And you have to take a position, and everybody would take a different position that represents power for them. And this power is not, 
power again, like spirituality, is a very misused term today. You know, we associate power with political power, with warfare, with missile strength and nuclear. It's for me, power is this in you. So when I say take positions of power, they are all trying. They have the eyes shut. They're trying to find that position. And every time in the next few days, when we're working together, the minute there is intense vulnerability or a breakdown moment, we're all like, okay, let's all come together and do that person's position of power. So we all try to find and give him the power. So this is because you asked for particular practices. Mm -hmm. These are some of the practices I use. And it comes from, obviously, a personal uh, expertise. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's been valuable these three days, is picking up technique from everybody sure. that we would use again and increase our vocabulary. Mm -hmm. But I think the central, for me, it starts with the focus, the naming, the losing inhibition, and humor developing the, the systems of power, and only then you open up the questions that, that of the actual issue in hand. Till then, I don't even right. touch it. Thank mm. you. There's no point. Does that answer your question up there? Yeah. Um, unless anyone else wants to chip in, I think there was another question in the middle. Hi, yeah, I'd be really interested to know more about your most inspirational moment. And if you don't like that question, then um, what's been your biggest challenge and how have you overcome it? So it's kind of like two prong. Let's start with the first prong. Yeah. <laughs> Can I soften the prong slightly? So um, we talked about you also thinking about an example of um, um, that had of of artistic um, of, of sort of inspirational practice I suppose or examples where you had felt that there'd been artistry in in terms of how you'd been working and I just wondered if that might touch slightly into the the same uh, question. Okay, I'm going to. Uh, um, uh, that's good. Yes, Emma asked us who, where did we see creativity, and I've got a few lists. But and that might that does help me. I've got Janice Parker's Private Dancer down for that as well, because um, I'm sure some of you know it. I go back to and coming back to the practice, uh, somatic practice. This isn't exactly an artistic answer, I don't think, but maybe it is because it's about trusting the form. I remember when I was a young artist, I had to I made a piece in Liverpool. Uh, with lots of different youth uh, companies. I was really young, and it was, it was we we're talking early, mm, mid-80s, something like that. And uh, I really, at that time, thought, I am whoever I'm going to be da dancing with, I'm going to honor the somatic practice that I really believe in. And so I was doing what I call sacrum following. So hand on someone's sacrum, hand on their belly, stand, breathe, wait, listen, take the front hand away from the belly very slowly, and usually the person standing here will want to move. If they don't, then this hand on the sacrum guides them forward into space. It's about taking forwardness, going into the unknown, but also finding your center. It's a brilliant exercise, I love it. 
Um, but I was faced with some disco dancers in a little youth club with lots of spotlights on, and they'd all got their little all-in-ones, and they were all standing there, and I was thinking, oh, God, I can't do sacrum dancing with this. I'm going to have to go back to 5, 6, 7, 8. And a little voice in my head, fear, said, trust the form, Rosemary. So I just remember taking this young woman, she was about 12, 13, she was looking at me like, what are you doing? Uh, and I could feel that lycra slipping on my hands. And I was thinking... <laughs> Uh, is she, this, this isn't going to work. And as I removed my hand, she shot off. I could not keep up with her. And as she shot off around the room running, she was so amazed by this new sense in her body. She was going, ah, ah. And I was like, and I was thinking, it works, it works. Trying to run to keep up with her, trying to keep up. That was the most inspirational moment. And uh, uh, I often come back to that at my biggest moments of fear. Excellent lycra moments. Vincent, do you want to share? Yeah, I, I, um, the, the most recent inspirational moment actually came after I was already in the creative process of this work, what's going on. Um, although it's, it, it started with me thinking about my family, my parents, and their friends dancing in the small living room. And um, so it wasn't until after the first part of the opening section um, began and where I was asked to write about, to write a quote about something. And so, so I was thinking through, I said, yeah, this is what it is. And this is really the, a, a huge jumping off place of inspiration for me for the whole piece was that their social dancing in the living room with all of their friends was their social justice. Mm -hmm. And that was huge for me. And it really permeated through the, entire, the rest of the piece. And it gave light and permission to the second half, which is all about social justice and life and love. The love of that social justice and how it comes through the physical body. But it all started in that small living room of sweaty aunts and uncles and cousins and parents just sweating it out in the living room, dancing socially. And because they, my parents never talked to me about um, the civil rights movement that they grew up in, even when I asked. And so when I think back on, okay, so they were not able to articulate with words about that, but I could see it in their bodies. So those movements that they were doing were in response to the social justice things that were happening in that time for them. And so for me, the inspiration came after I was already in the work. Nice, a kind of collective freedom yeah. in the dancing. Yeah, yeah. really nice. Mark, do you want to add it? Yeah. Um, I think the most inspirational moment was a very special moment when one, we had one dancer, Guylaine, was in her 81 years old. She passed away at the beginning of the year. But before that moment, she didn't show up at class and I called her to wish her a good new year. I found out that she was in hospital. And you have to know she's uh, originally Parisian, uh, 150 tall, uh, uh, curl, curly hair, pearls in her, in her ears. And when she came in, we had to carry her back. <laughs> for her. She was our little princess. Excellent. Um, 
Joe is also was, was uh, giving a good advice how we could improve things with better music or better chairs or better whatever. <laughs> Pain in the ass. But we loved her. Um, she was 81, and uh, we, I found out she was in the hospital, and I went to the hospital, and there there were two other of our dancers at her bed. And uh, there was a moment, and she asked me, Mark, your phone, can you? She knew, she knew I was playing the music in the classroom out of the phone. So can you put on some music? So we did. And she was almost half, half here, half there. And put on music, and she started to move her hand. And we started to dance together in the hospital. And at that moment, there was no time, there was no gravity, there was nothing but connection and letting go, literally letting go. And this is the extreme example of letting go, but this is what uh, I really want to achieve. Every time I dance, every time I, I connect with somebody else, that this, uh, this is something we can able to, to get. Um, this is the most special moment where uh, uh, I feel still connected in the way we could do this. And yeah. Wonderful, wonderful story. Thank you. Do you want to add in? Um, I'm not going to try to follow that inspirational <laughs> story, and I am going through the list of far too many um, to be able to pull them out here. But um, maybe it's important or helpful to speak about a challenge um, I'm facing at the moment, um, which is with this, this project with the women with and without cancer, age 17 to 74, um, because we've tried to create such a space since March of um, inclusion and participation, self-created movement, um, lots and lots and lots and lots of dancing. Um, and now we're facing the last curve of creative decisions and things getting edited and cut out and some things that maybe um, really meant a lot to them or really was a, a personal ownership of movement, all the things we've talked about here. But now we're getting, we're looking down the curve of um, we, have to, we have to create a piece and we have artistic standards that myself and my colleague hold for ourselves and we have choices and we have opinions and um, how, do we, how are we going to navigate this in the next two months is my current challenge. Um, yeah, I'll let you know in two months how it goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, um, I mean, I, I think to try to already speak about, because we're trying try to be productive here, is to, um, is to try to, I think, actually holding the level of professionalism very high is also an opportunity and a gift um, for the participants. And maybe there might be um, a personal sting at moments or frustration or confusion, but to invite them into that process and as to the why we're making these choices. Um, and I, I'm hoping that through the inclusion of the process and the discussion around the artistic choices, that this will help them understand um, the choices that we're making. So. Great. Thank you. I think um, for me, both come together. The most challenging moments sometimes lead to the most inspiring moments because you're pushed to that point. Um, so this is an exercise I do a lot in my gender workshops. 
Um, so the question, I'm going to give you a question, and after the question, there are 10 situations. And in each situation, you have to think. Normally, people write yes or no. So the question is, when is it okay for a man to force a woman to have sex with him? And in the following 10 situations, if you think in this situation it's okay for a man to force a woman to have sex with him, you say yes. And if you think uh, it's not okay for a man to force a woman to have sex with him, you say no. So the first situation is if she's his wife, yes, if you think he can then force her, no, if she, he can't force her. If she is a sex worker, yes or no. If uh, she is drunk, if she is out late at night, if she is from a different caste or different community from you, if she is actually a man, um, if uh, she is dressed in very sexy clothes, if you've had sex with her before, if you know she's had sex with other guys, if so depending on the culture, I make these options. And I usually run this for actually NGO personnel as training of trainers to see where their level of Conviction is because we all have socialization, very deep-rooted socializations in India and many parts of Asia. So I think we all know, I'm hoping we all know in this room that the answer is always no. You can never force a woman to have sex with you or a man for that matter. But I never get 10 no's. I never get 10 no's. And even if sometimes they um, accept that you can't force a sex worker. Almost always, nobody says it's not, you cannot force, how can you not force your wife to have sex with you? Your wife has to have sex with you when you ask her to. So marital rape, even with the Supreme Court in India, just brought out this ridiculous statement two weeks ago that marital rape, we can't institutionalize marital rape as, as, as rape because that would destroy the institution of marriage. I'm single, by the way. <laughs> um, so these are such deep-rooted beliefs in the countries that I work in that a woman belongs to somebody. A woman belongs to a man or she basically she doesn't belong to herself. Her body has always, if she does not conform, she is open to being challenged or being occupied by another body. This is not a small challenge, and this is just one of the many challenges that many facilitators in my country face, but not just from us, it's from within us. Mm -hmm. Every time I do this exercise, I have people saying, but that does, you mean I can actually, I have women coming up to me after the session saying, you mean I can actually say don't no to my husband? I'm like, yes, you can, you should. But last, just before I came here, the reason I'm so sleep deprived is we run camps across the country for youth. And we are just training them. We're training waves and waves of young people to go out and be peer educators with their own communities. And this is one of the exercises around them. So run at the first day, we give a questionnaire at the beginning so we can track if they have changed in the end. So run it the first day and the questionnaire, obviously you get like, some case you get 10 no's and you're like, just drown me now. Um, but you work on it, and every day I'm running exercises like these. But on the third day, so I just said, so you remember this question, I said, this is it, the answer is just no. But every day there was this one guy that would resist. He'd be like, no, but my wife, she should. And he's a nice guy. 
But that's when I realized every guy, even a nice guy, is a potential rapist in my country. Bloody hell, where do I go? <laughs> you know? Because what do you do? So what we do is we don't try to convince. There's no point. This is they have come after 20 years in their house, and I have three hours with them, right? Mm. So we hit them with friendship. We, we do ultimate frisbee with them, we dance with them. They are interacting with women on an equal, friendly basis for the first time. We are like giving everybody kisses, we are hugging, we're running around. And the third day, this boy came up to me and said, Didi, so like elder sister in Hindi, I feel so sad. I feel so bad that I even thought I could force someone, anyone, to have sex with me. And I was like, I love you, I love you so much. <laughs> and these are the moments we live for. And that's the beauty of the work, is that these moments come often enough for you to not want to commit suicide. <laughs> Thank you very much. We've just got a few more minutes left, so I just wondered if there's any other Questions? Oh, sorry, yep, in the corner there. Sorry, I didn't see you in the light. Hello, I'm just wondering, um, sometimes when you create work with diverse communities, even though you've had a really strong artistic vision, um, the response to the work can be quite a, oh, isn't that nice? Or that must be really rewarding, and doesn't always see it um, for the artistry that it is. I'm just wondering if that's happened to you, how you deal with those kind of responses and make them understand that it is art. And, yeah. <laughs> yes, I have had that. Uh, less so now, but I remember a situation, <laughs> careful how I phrase this, but anyway, with a, a cast of 13 of different ages at the South Bank and uh, people sort of commissioning it at this sort of VIP thing afterwards sort of said, oh, that's one of the best things I've seen of that kind. And for me, that was really insulting. And uh, I just made my excuses that I wanted to be with the children, which also shook them because I said, I, I can't see the children in the cast and I want to be with them. And that, that also surprised them because they thought I would be removed from my cast and do the VIP and have the drinks and not be concerned about where my dancers were. So there were two things in there, one that, and it just felt like it was such a gulf. Uh, but also I felt like they perhaps saw that just by me saying, I need to go because I can't see Amari. Um, and he needs to be at this reception because we need to celebrate their part in this piece. Um, I think just the look of, I felt like there was a recognition that they kind of didn't understand there. But also, I wish that I had, I, I wish we could talk a little bit more, and it's a tricky issue, about sort of choreographic glasses and how people view work. Uh, I think we're just, I think you've just opened a huge area here that we could go on. But so, uh, um, yeah, one of, my, one of my things is I would like my work, if it is, has loads of different people in it, to be judged in the same way any other work at a festival would be judged. But equally, I can see that people just don't have the skill to do that. They can't, they can't actually see it in the same way. Do you don't think, has it changed at all, do you better. think, since I that think, South Bank experience I you mentioned? I think it probably is better, but I, I still don't get 
people coming because my work's always not in contact. So in terms of reviews and things, I, I get less review time, I think, because of where it might be and who might be in it, I think. I think probably still mm. a bit, actually, if I'm honest. Is that to do with do the think? conservative nature of the critics in this yeah. country? Yeah, I think, uh, I think the measuring stick is still ballet for yeah. a lot of them, and that's a real problem. Yeah, Because if you're you. going to measure things by, by a, a different form, uh, you're going to look at it in a different way and make judgments about it. But it, I think you have opened a whole other area of discussion, and yes, mm. I have experienced that. And it is something I find even difficult to talk about because I don't think I have the right language. But I think it's something about the way we look at things and the measuring sticks we judge things by. But isn't it Thank not you. just the ballet, but it's also that it's because it's non-professional performers. Mm. Yeah. I think that that's, that's something we're also fighting even still in Germany as well. It's, yeah. it's this, uh, you have to be professionally trained to be, um, to be able to contribute to mm. a piece of art and mm. dance. And, mm. and obviously, we're just working really hard to break this. But Legitimacy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, to legitimize it. Yeah. Yeah. And then it is that question of that Emma's really posing is what is art in a sense. And uh, for me, the thing, the, the, some of one of the works I remember most was a big community project done by Major Road Theatre Company in their day, Graham Devlin, uh, with a group of very severely disabled children in a residential home. I'll never forget it. It was an amazing piece of work. But only me and their parents and saw it. But for me, it was one of the best bits of art I've ever seen because I was so moved by it. And uh, but that being moved and touched and is not seen as um, a criteria for the success of a of a piece of work. Do you see what I mean? That's sort of put to one side. Oh well, I'm only moved because they're disabled, or I'm only moved because they're old. But I can't I can't have that as one of my reactions to say it's a good piece of work. I, I think, I think that raises the whole there. questions of, of the artistry of yeah. what we've been talking about and, and how that's seen and how it's read. Yeah. And that is partly to do with location and it's partly to do with technique a lot for yeah. me in terms of looking at different ways to communicate with different sorts of bodies and different levels of skills mm. that are, are still many hurdles for us yeah. to cross, I think. Yeah. Thank you. I think um, we're kind of out of time. Um, thank you to Chris and Kiki for putting this fantastic panel together. It's been really fascinating. I hope you found it as interesting as I have. Um, I, yeah, I just, I just think, I just, for me, this, the artistry is, is a way of intensifying life. That's how I feel life, in a summary of existence in the presence and shared presence. Um, and I just want to say a big thank you. It's been really fascinating. Thank you for being here, and I hope the rest of the conference is great. <laughs>